Boy, how appropriate that we're talking about Woodrow Wilson in a church. Wilson would approve it. I, I don't know if I have to compete with the organ or not. Um, I, I just want to take a moment and say thank you to Brian and to all of his colleagues, of course to Gleaves and to everyone associated with the Hohenstein Center. It is no small tribute to this university, which is uh, a very impressive place uh, to begin with, that it has been able in a very short period of time to create something like the Hohenstein Center, which whether you know it or not, has a national profile and is uh, taken very seriously and uh, viewed with uh, considerable respect and admiration and in some quarters envy uh, by, uh, by universities all over the country. Uh, whatever you're doing, uh, I hope you keep on doing it. Um, I also want to say a special thank you to a number of folks who are obviously gluttons for punishment who have been coming back to lecture after lecture after lecture. It's good to see you back, and it's good to see uh, so many uh, first-time faces as well. I don't know why Woodrow Wilson uh, would have attracted the largest number of, uh, of folks. Uh, maybe he's the least known. Uh, maybe he's the most caricatured. Or maybe it's just it happens to be his 150th birthday this year. But in any event, we're delighted you're here. The, the name of this talk is Woodrow Wilson and the Law of Unintended Consequences. Presidents all think they're the most powerful men in the world. And one of the things that I think hopefully has come through in these lectures to date is they're not as powerful as they think they are. Um, if you have any doubts, I'd ask George W. Bush. Um, presidents, in fact, find themselves limited in many ways uh, by laws in addition to those that are in the Constitution. And, and the law of unintended consequences is one of them. And I want to talk about that. But let me introduce you to Woodrow Wilson. Um, the joke is an old one. On his death, Woodrow Wilson went straight to heaven, where he encountered Moses on the golden streets of New Jerusalem. You are Mr. Wilson, are you not? asked the great Hebrew leader. I am. Then I'm very sorry for you, said Moses. Why so? Weren't you Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States? I was. And didn't you issue the 14 points for the settlement of the Great War? I did. Well, said Moses, then I'm sorry for you, because on earth they have done dreadful things to your 14 points. That's nothing, Wilson shot back. You should see what they've done to your Ten Commandments. <laughs> Eighty years after his death, most, most of us regard our 28th president as a marble statue or a plaster saint, sculpted to the apprehensions that Wilson himself voiced in the election year of 1912. Speaking of his charismatic opponent in that year's presidential contest, the professor turned politician said of Theodore Roosevelt, quote, he appeals to their imagination. I do not. He is a real vivid person whom they have seen and shouted themselves horse over and voted for millions strong. I am a vague, conjectural personality more made up opinions and academic prepossessions than of human traits and red corpuscles. In fact, there's a wonderful moment in the 1912 campaign when someone in the crowd shouted, hey, Woody. And Wilson, taken aback, said, did you hear that? He called me Woody. Part of Wilson that I think is so elusive and so poignant is a man who wanted to reach out 
to those people out there who were prepared to call him Woody, uh, but he never quite found the way, unlike Teddy Roosevelt, who was Teddy to everyone. Try to imagine yourself in 1912 in Woodrow Wilson's America. It's a very different country from the one we live in today. The United States in 1912 is an adolescent nation of Huckmobiles and Norfolk jackets growing its way toward modernity. We just had a 300 millionth person, according to the Census Bureau. The most recent census, the 1910 census, fixed the center of population in this country at Bloomington, Indiana. There were fewer than 100 million Americans. One fourth of them were farmers. Among urban dwellers, only one household in 10 had electricity. Fewer still reported bathtubs, gas coolers, or washing machines. And yet, Americans in 1912 boasted two-thirds of the world's telephones. The city of Chicago alone counted twice as many as Japan. There were more miles of rail track in Texas than in the entire continent of Africa. Versailles was the name of a French palace. Lusitania, a five-year-old passenger liner, celebrated as the winner of the 1907 ribbon for the fastest transatlantic crossing. You have never heard of peace without victory or open covenants openly arrived at. To you and most of your countrymen, Woodrow Wilson is a one-term governor of New Jersey, less notorious than some one-term governors of New Jersey, yet far less familiar to the electorate than his rivals. To know Woodrow Wilson, one must soak in the bath of Southern Presbyterianism and shake hands with a confessed mama's boy who told his fiance in 1884, it isn't pleasant or convenient to have strong passions. I have the uncomfortable feeling that I'm carrying a volcano about with me. To know Wilson, one must penetrate the emotional defenses of an aspiring leader who raised his chilly manner to the level of principle. Plenty of people offer me their friendship, he admitted, but partly because I am reserved and shy, and partly because I am fastidious and have narrow, uncatholic taste in friends, I reject the offer in almost every case. Perhaps it is because when I give it all, I want to give my whole heart and feel that so few want it all or would return measure for measure. Few historical figures better illustrate than Woodrow Wilson the axiom that character is destiny. Introspection was inbred into this minister's son, along with the shorter Westminster Catechism. And he seems never to have questioned why he spent a lifetime racing the clock, why, in his words, success does not flush or elate me except for the moment. What next? Wilson wondered characteristically after receiving the good news that his first book had been accepted for publication. I must push on. To linger would be fatal. Scholars have despaired of reconciling his intense craving for human affection with his reluctance to share his inner self. I tell you one thing, Bobby, he wrote a friend in 1880, I am absolutely dependent upon sympathy. Then why didn't he show it? Scholars have puzzled over the warm humanity of Wilson's speeches and the icy rectitude that denied his own brother the job of postmaster. 
What are historians to make of the first Southern-born president since Andrew Jackson, imbued with his native region's courtly manners, family ties, and patriotic attachments, yet feeling himself a nomad, homeless, as he put it to his personal secretary, along with a taste for sweet potatoes, fried chicken and rice, when a more troublesome mark of the South, a racism that cloaked itself in benevolent superiority. As president, Wilson every night polished his own shoes to, to save servants the trouble. At the same time, he instituted segregation throughout the federal workforce. Go figure. It's harder for a leader to be born in a palace, he said, than to be born in a cabin. He left out a third alternative, a manse. Both the side of Wilson that was in love with tradition and the striving, dissatisfied seeker after place can be traced to a household which Irish merriment dueled with Scotch sobriety. To his secretary, Wilson revealed two natures in constant battle for emotional supremacy. Reflecting the diverging streams represented by his father, Joseph Wilson, and his mother, Jessie Woodrow, he observed, on the one side, there is the Irish in me, quick, generous, impulsive, passionate, anxious always to help and to sympathize with those in distress. Then on the other side, there is the Scotch, canny, tenacious, cold, perhaps a little exclusive. I tell you, my dear friend, that when these two fellows get to quarreling among themselves, it's hard to act as umpire between them. Wilson's father was a pulpit orator who recited puns with scriptural authority. Despite a dyslexic condition that prevented him from reading until he was nine years old, young Woodrow grew up a beneficiary of books. The elder Wilson drilled his son in verbal precision. Make your mind like a needle, he commanded, of one eye and a single point. Shoot your words straight at the target. Words were to be Wilson's bridge to other people. Sometimes, unintentionally, they were a barrier. From an early age, he would try to exert control through his 62,000-word vocabulary. Yet if he stayed physically close to home, in imagination he roamed far afield. He took refuge in a dream world, imagining himself Vice Admiral Thomas W. Wilson, Duke of Eggleton. He filled scrapbooks with ship pictures, made daily reports to the Admiralty, and fought pirates in the Pacific of his fantasies. An aging black butler hit the mark when he recalled, quote, an old young man who tried to explain the reason of things, more words. At the age of 15, Wilson hung a portrait of William Gladstone, the British Prime Minister, over his desk. He said he was the greatest man who ever lived next to Jesus. Much later, he would pay tribute in Gladstonian terms to what he called the beauty of democracy. You can never tell when a youngster is born what he is going to do with himself, and that no matter what circumstances hamper him at the outset, he has got a chance to master the minds and lead the imagination of the whole country. Wilson's own circumstances little foreshadowed the master of minds in the White House. From his mother, Jesse, he inherited his lantern jaw, weak eyes, and dignified bearing. Jesse Wilson lavished affection on the favorite among her four children. She walked to church on Woodrow's arm, worried over his health, 
imparted a sensitive streak to his character. Once, in a pretended Indian attack, a wayward arrow knocked his cousin unconscious. I killed her, screamed Woodrow. It's no accident. I'm a murderer. The same intensity caused the teenage Wilson to weep over communion hymns and thrill to the prose of Shakespeare and Dante. Woodrow was a late bloomer. He was kept at home until he was 12 years old. He was called Tommy by his family until he was 25. In the fall of 1875, he enrolled at the College of New Jersey, what we now know as Princeton University. His undergraduate career was marked by the first in a series of star turns on the debating circuit and as author of college constitutions modeled after the British Parliament. Wilson handed out cards introducing himself as Thomas W. Wilson, Senator from Virginia. He began a systematic probe of cabinet government on both sides of the Atlantic. The result of his labors appeared in the August 1879 edition of International Review, edited by a near contemporary from Boston named Henry Cabot Lodge. That name will recur in the Wilson story. After he graduated from Princeton, Wilson spent a year and a half as a legal student at the University of Virginia before ill health forced him to return home. Actually, he was sick of the law. He hated it. He called it monotonous as hash. He was a lawyer, briefly, in Atlanta. He had one client, his mother. He, uh, he spent less time in courtrooms than he did in the Georgia State House. I throw away law reports for histories, he acknowledged. My mind runs after the solution of political rather than legal problems. He didn't stay in Atlanta very long. He wept at the chance to study political science at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He also started a pair of books, including one called Congressional Government, uh, which is read to this day. It is still regarded as a classic on the subject. The text revealed much about its author and his ambitions. Woodrow Wilson is an oratorical leader. He really is much more of a parliamentarian than he is a president in the way you and I think. He defined government, successful government, as, quote, government by advocacy, by discussion, by persuasion. It is natural that orators should be the leaders of a self-governing people. With his academic career launched, Wilson was free to marry Miss Ellen May Axon of Rome, Georgia, who, like himself, was descended from Presbyterian ministers. A talented artist and musician, she encouraged her suitor's intellectual ambitions. Today, Ellen would have a career of her own. 120 years ago, she subsumed her professional ambitions in Woodrow. She made no attempt to curtail his highly developed sense of the ridiculous. Now, this is another one of the contradictions of Woodrow Wilson. You look at Wilson, you think about Wilson, you think of this very serious, very dry, rather distant academic um, but in fact, this is how, what he wrote during his courtship to Ellen. It may shock you, but I'm afraid it will not, to learn that I have a reputation amongst most of my kin and certain of my friends for being irrepressible in select circles as a maker of grotesque addresses from the precarious elevation of chair seats, as a wearer of all varieties of comic grimaces, as a simulator of sundry unnatural burlesque styles of voice and speech, as a lover of farces, even as a dancer of the can-can. It was true. Within the bosom of his family, Wilson could discard his mask of formality, entering gleefully into charades, 
convulsing his daughters as he became a pompous dowager slithering about in a feather bower, or a stuffy Englishman fingering his monocle. Americans would have been astonished to learn that a president popularly depicted as an austere thinking machine loved vaudeville shows, limericks, and the tricky patter of Gilbert and Sullivan. His favorite power trick was a much requested imitation of a rubber-legged drunk. Wilson had no intention of letting anyone in on the secret. He told Ellen she was the only person in the world, except for the dear ones at home, with whom I do not have to act a part. After a brief stint teaching women at Bryn Mawr, Wilson accepted a job offer from Wesleyan University in Connecticut. There he was as popular for his football cheers as for his debating society. He published a second book, The State, to glowing reviews. He was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. Still, he was restless. It was not enough. I want to write books that will be read by the great hosts who don't wear spectacles, he said. He was a popular instructor at Wesleyan, still more popular at Princeton. In 1902, the university made him its president. This was six years after the first stroke. Now, Wilson illustrates more than any other American president when we talk about the law of unintended consequences, none of us really have ultimate control over our physical well-being. Uh, Woodrow Wilson suffered from hypertension and a series of strokes. And they would have enormous impact upon how he conducted his presidency and ultimately on his place in history. But this was a man of enormous iron will, so in fact, after his first stroke, he did not retire. On the contrary, he taught himself to write left-handed. Just as earlier, he had taught himself shorthand and how to overcome dyslexia. Still, he was unfulfilled. On a research trip to Washington, he wrote, he felt the old longing for public life comes upon me in a flood. It was no accident that the new president entitled his inaugural address Princeton for the nation's service. Wilson had his eye on another presidency. The key to his continuing dissatisfaction and to the pattern of emotional crusading that would reach its zenith during his presidency can be found in one more letter, earlier letter to Ellen, penned at a time when he was just entering into his literary and academic inheritance. Quote, I have a strong instinct for leadership, an unmistakably oratorical temperament, and the keenest possible delight in affairs. And it has required very constant and stringent schooling to content me with the sober methods of the scholar and the man of letters. This was a man living in a straitjacket. Only once did he stray in every sense of the word. In 1906, while he was vacationing, recovering from a stroke, on the island of Bermuda, he met a woman named Mary Allen Peck, whose conversational skills, combined with her marital predicament, to rather more than exploit Woodrow's chivalrous attitude toward the fairer sex, they had an affair. We don't know how far it went. We don't know how long it lasted. But we do know that Wilson came home from Bermuda. He had a long talk with Ellen. Ellen forgave him for straying, uh, and their talk was followed by a resumption in the passionate correspondence that united them whenever they were apart. But the amazing thing is, 
he remained friends with Mrs. Peck. The phrase, Peck's bad boy, that's a legacy of the affair between Woodrow Wilson and Mary Peck. Most biographers have taken Wilson at his word when he said that in the matter of religion, all argument was adjourned. He certainly sounded like a true believer. Quote, my life would not be worth living if it were not for the driving power of religion, of faith, pure and simple, he said. He read a chapter of the Bible each day. He knelt to, prayer, to pray every night. But he was not theologically curious. Much less was he given to fire and brimstone. For all this, Wilson has been caricatured as a 20th century blend of John Calvin and Savonarola with a direct pipeline to God and the burning convictions of a visible saint. Not for nothing did he announce the beauty about a Scotch-Irishman is that he not only thinks he is right, he knows he is right, adding, I have not departed from the faith of my ancestors. A colleague at Princeton said to him there were two sides to every question. Yes, said Wilson, a right side and a wrong side. He never doubted which side he was on. Perhaps faith and works have been confused. Faith reinforced Wilson's solitude. It gave sanction to his ambitions for personal success and worldly honors. It justified him transforming his own deepest convictions. In the 1890s, Wilson was a conservative Democrat. Uh, Grover Cleveland was in the White House. Uh, I won't bore you with all the details, but basically Wilson was someone who was a basic conservative. After Cleveland's presidency, the mood of the country changed. The mood of the Democratic Party changed dramatically, thanks to William Jennings Bryan. The future was not conservative. The future of the Democratic Party was liberal, populist, and the like. And guess what? Woodrow Wilson was no longer a conservative. In fact, he came up with some wonderful one-liners putting conservatism down. He said, a conservative is someone who just sits and thinks, mostly sits. He also, he also defined the essence of conservatism in one sentence as, make no change, and when in doubt, consult your grandmother. Wilson's own words, spoken in 1907, may suggest how he justified this transformation. A politician, he explained, a man engaged in party contests must be an opportunist. Because although you steer by the North Star, when you have lost the bearings of your compass, you nevertheless steer a pathway to the sea. Ambition, I would suggest, was Wilson's compass. Faith was his North Star. Faith tolerated the brittleness of a believer with a bad stomach and the irritability that went along with that. Wilson had, as you've already gathered, precarious health. In addition to the strokes, he, had, he suffered from terrible indigestion, what he said was problems in Central America, as he described them. He had a doctor named Kerry Grayson who uh, suggested that he knew how to take care of this. Wilson should get more physical exercise. He should play golf every day. He should eat meal every day. And he should, uh, once a day, swallow a raw egg and a glass of orange juice. Wilson said he liked the golf. Uh, he didn't mind the oatmeal, but every time he swallowed the raw egg, he felt like he was swallowing a newborn baby. 
1912, Wilson is nominated uh, by the Democrats on a slogan, the new freedom. It's not just a slogan. Now, this is no mere uh, candidate. This is a very unusual candidate. This is an intellectual. This is the only Ph.D. in American history who ever ran for and was elected to the presidency. This was a thoughtful man who had thought long and hard about American history and what was wrong with American society at a time of great industrial growth, great riches, unevenly distributed. Um, Wilson had what he called the new freedom, and it was, although this may sound paradoxical, the, the idea was basically that he would use government to pursue freedom. He would produce both freedom from government and freedom through government. I'll give you an example. Um, he created the Federal Trade Commission. The idea was basically turn the clock back, level the playing field, give the small businessman an equal opportunity in the, uh, in the economic competition with the, with the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. The Federal Reserve, which today is the single most important instrument in controlling our economy, the Federal Reserve was Woodrow Wilson's creation. He nominated the first Jew to the United States Supreme Court, a lawyer from Boston named Louis Brandeis. Over and over again, Wilson broke with tradition. Uh, his reform agenda was something of a paradox because its promoter was the most conservative of men in his personal habits. I already mentioned he spent time on Bermuda. He loved the island. He led a petition to ban automobiles from Bermuda. Later, he showed the same passion for motoring in his White House Pierce Arrow, provided the driver never went over 20 miles an hour and never deviated from a few well-traveled routes. The originator of the new freedom still cherished the old kerosene lamp by which he had studied as a Princeton undergraduate. The great intellectual preferred detective stories to serious fiction. Wilson said the presidency required the constitution of an athlete, the patience of a mother, the endurance of the early Christian. His uh, constitution would be severely tested, as was his patience and ultimately his endurance. But he also had a great line that I think probably all of the newcomers who are going to D.C. in the next few days, Republicans or Democrats, mostly Democrats, uh, would probably uh, appreciate. Uh, Wilson said, every man who comes to the Capitol does one of two things. Either he grows or he swells. Wilson also said that if you want to make enemies in Washington, try to change something. His countrymen could hardly know the pattern that held throughout their president's career, initial often dazzling accomplishment based on a clear agenda and the skills to realize it. At Princeton, for example, Wilson breathed new life into a provincial college only to run afoul of undemocratic eating clubs. A similar breakdown occurred between Governor Wilson and the legislators of New Jersey in 1912 following a remarkably harmonious and productive freshman year. In each case, he seemed to lose his early deft touch, inflating personal differences, rejecting offers of compromise. His desire for victory, great as it was, could not equal his need for control. In fact, he was caught on an emotional treadmill. Chronic discontent lashed him to succeed, yet deprived him of the capacity to enjoy success. Each new challenge only reminded him of the pledge 
he made as a newly published author to linger would be fatal. One of the wonderful, surprising thing about Wilson, again, this is a man who expands government as no president before him, and yet someone who was very, very um, disdainful of what you and I would call modern public relations and, and presidents courting the press. Um, this was an era in American history when there were weeks designated for all sorts of admirable causes. Uh, there was Be Kind to Animals Week and Better Homes Week and Cleanup Week. And Woodrow Wilson, the unconventional conservative, said there really ought to be a week designated for people to mind their own business. His business became tragic uh, just one year into his presidency. In the summer of 1914, Europe was about to go to war, World War I. And in his bedroom in the White House, Ellen Wilson was dying of Bright's disease, a kidney disease. And when she died, her husband was absolutely crushed. Woodrow Wilson needed women. He needed the love of a woman. He needed the support of a woman. He needed the confidence that came from being loved. And he was absolutely bereft. He actually thought about resigning the presidency. Um, in lieu of resigning, he courted another woman. Her name was Edith Bowling Gall, statuesque figure. She claimed to be descended from Pocahontas. Uh, her husband ran a jewelry store in Washington. And matchmaking friends brought them together. And instantly, there was a spark. The problem was Wilson's political advisors didn't want him to get remarried. There was a re-election coming up in 1916, and they thought he would forfeit all the sympathy that he had gotten as a result of the death of his wife if he were to marry this Rubenesque figure, Edith Bowling Gall. Well, Wilson um, overrode their objections. He married Mrs. Gall, and there's a wonderful scene on their honeymoon on the train the next morning. This 59-year-old austere academic, you know, that we all we all, we all envision, was seen by a Secret Service man walking down the aisle of the train, jumping in the air, kicking, clicking his heels, and singing a popular song of the day, "Oh, you beautiful doll, you great big beautiful doll." When a German U-boat sank the passenger line of Lusitania in May 1915, Wilson wrote a stiffly worded note to Berlin. Publicly, he declared that there was such a thing as a man or nation being too proud to fight. Many Americans disagreed. Two years later, in the face of continuing submarine attacks, he did an about-face. Avenging maritime losses was not enough for Wilson's crusading spirit. The world must be made safe for democracy, the president told Congress. Then, as now, that's a tall order. So what had happened to the man who kept us out of war? Quote, this is Wilson speaking to Congress two months after his reelection on the slogan, he kept us out of war. The right is more precious than peace, and we shall fight for the things which we have always carried near our hearts, for our democracy, for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government, for the rights and liberties of small nations, for a universal dominion of right by such a concert of free peoples as shall bring peace and safety to all nations and make the world itself free at last. Close your eyes 
And in that verbal trumpet blast, you can hear at least a faint echo of George W. Bush's missionary proclamation of freedom as a universal birthright and America as a divinely inspired agent of liberation. Wilson still matters. Wilson still speaks to us. Wilson still speaks through us, for better and worse. But there are cautionary notes in this music. Wilson raised public expectations with his eloquence, even as he roused his countrymen to forsake their traditional isolation and rescue the old world from itself. That is another way in which the Wilson experience is relevant to our own time. Wilson's first term had been marked by a concerted assault on economic monopoly. Wartime, well, there's a whole new agenda. And ironically, the man who invented the new freedom presides over the greatest centralization of power in the history of this nation with himself uh, practicing virtual one-man rule. He and his allies in Congress created a host of economic planning agencies to fix prices, establish priorities, allocate materials. There was an emergency fleet corporation, a fuel administration, even a national screw thread commission. Food will win the war, a voluntary campaign for Americans to go without wheat and meat so that there'd be more food for the allies. The White House led by public relations gesture. This man who'd said he didn't much care for public relations. Uh, they junked the White House automobile and the, and the Wilsons rode around Washington in a horse-drawn carriage. Um, because of the laboring shortage, uh, they got rid of the gardeners at the White House and replaced them with a flock of sheep. Uh, in fact, one wag started referring to the First Lady as Little Bo Peep. Um, the problem with the sheep was they ate the shrubbery and the flowers, and in the end they turned out to be uh, more expensive than the gardeners. The president's own son-in-law ran the nation's railroads, consolidating them into a single system. There was something called the Trading with the Enemy Act, which enabled Wilson to seize and administer all enemy property in the United States. Four million workers were placed in war-related jobs Another two million were shipped overseas, courtesy of the Selective Service Act. Thanks to the war, government engaged in behavior modification on an undreamed of scale. First, the Army prohibited intoxicating drink from areas adjoining hastily constructed training camps. Then a grain shortage led Congress to outlaw the use of crops and distilling alcohol. If the red-faced patrons of Teutonic beer halls protested the sudden austerity, so much better. Cincinnati went a step further, banning the consumption of German pretzels at the lunch hour. Sauerkraut was renamed Liberty Cabbage. In Iowa, the legislature passed a law making it a crime to speak on the telephone in any language but English. Daylight savings time was created by the Wilson administration. It's still with us. Um, one White House chef, told to have dinner ready at 7 o'clock, asserted irritably, by whose time? Wilson's time or Christ's time? It was said everyone in the room laughed. Even the president cracked a smile until he said that is irreverent. Wilson tragically justified his own prophecy. This is Wilson's own prediction about what would happen if the United States went into war. 
once lead this nation into war, and they'll forget there ever was such a thing as tolerance. The spirit of ruthless brutality will enter into every fiber of our life. Before the end of 1917, Wilson jailed a socialist candidate for president, a man named Eugene Debs. He deported an anarchist named Emma Goldman for verbally impeding the draft. Hundreds of others were prosecuted under the Espionage Act or hounded by jingos who smashed Beethoven records and banned German courses from the campus. Wilson, in the end, was an orator intoxicated by his own eloquence. But words have their limits. Sometimes people call me an idealist, he said. Well, that is the way I know I'm an American. America is the only idealistic nation in the world. The Versailles Peace Conference at the end of the war exposed the limits of his glittering phrases and his idealism. Pitted against cynics like George Clemenceau of France and Lloyd George of Britain, America's sermonizing president didn't stand a chance. The 14 points were wildly impractical, said the French leader. God himself was content with Ten Commandments. Wilson clung to his hopes and his ideals long after he destroyed his health, and in a supreme irony, his own country's chances to enter the League of Nations, by which he had justified our entry into the war. He came back from Versailles. He realized that the Senate was not going to adopt the treaty, that the United States would not go into the League. So he decided to do what came naturally. He decided to go over the heads of the Senate, to get on a train, to go all over the country for several weeks and make speech after speech after speech. This, of course, is pre-radio, pre-television. Nothing like this had ever been done before. Wilson would single-handedly convince the American people that if the war was to have any purpose, any meaning at all, it would have to be in a league of nations to prevent future war. Well, he destroyed his health in doing it. On the way back to Washington, he suffered a stroke. It was the end of the tour. He came back, and then two weeks later, in the middle of the night, suffered a crippling stroke. It affected not only his health, doctors now believe it affected his mind in ways that made him absolutely unwilling to even entertain the possibility of compromise. The United States could have entered the League of Nations. They could have entered a league very close to the one that Wilson had negotiated. In the end, it was Wilson himself who was absolutely uh, unwilling to compromise, not once but twice. And as a result, he was swept out of office in 1920. It became a referendum on the League and on what was called Wilsonism. There was a landslide in favor of a Republican from Ohio named Warren Harding. Now, Wilson, at his last meeting of his cabinet, said that he was going to teach ex-presidents how to behave. At the same time, he also said that he was going to have real problems with Mr. Harding's English. Uh, remember, the former professor, someone once asked him to describe Harding's mind. He said, Warren Harding has a bungalow mind. Someone said, what does that mean? He said, no upper story. <laughs> he did not leave Washington. He and Edith uh, retreated to a house in the Calorama neighborhood of the nation's capital. And there he became forgotten or at least he thought, until something quite extraordinary happened at the very end of his life. On Armistice Day, 1923, 
he made a brief radio speech, the only time he spoke on the radio. And the next morning, to his astonishment, he looked out on the street and there were 20,000 people, many of them kneeling reverently before this man who was seen as the great pilgrim of peace, um, the great wartime leader who justified war to end war, to make the world, in fact, safe for democracy. He had a walking stick, he called it his third leg, and he hobbled out to the front porch of the house and everyone felt quiet. He spoke a few words, commonplace words, about his pride in the young men whom he had commanded as commander-in-chief. And then he said, I can't go on. And he turned around and he began to go back into the house and then a band in the street began playing the old Protestant hymn, How Firm a Foundation. And it's as if someone had flipped a switch. And Wilson said, stop the music, I have something else to say. And he hobbled back to the front of the house and then in a voice that people had not heard in three years, a voice that was firm and clear and absolutely convinced of its own righteousness. He told the 20,000 people, I have seen fools resist providence before, and I have seen their destruction. That we shall prevail is as sure as God reigns. He went back into the house. He was not seen again. Three months later, Another crowd gathered outside, kneeling in S Street, because in the third floor bedroom, Woodrow Wilson was dying. Uh, he died in February 1924. His last word was Edith. And ever since, there's been a debate raging about Woodrow Wilson and his legacy. Is the war in Iraq part of Woodrow Wilson's legacy? Is the notion that the United States has an almost divine mission, not only to civilize the world, but to democratize the world. Are we, in effect, a missionary nation? Is that Wilson's legacy? But also the notion of collective security, of the world coming together and talking out its differences in the League of Nations, what the United Nations was supposed to be and sometimes is. That's part of the Wilson legacy. In any event, Wilson has been gone for 80 years, but I can't think of another president, including Lincoln, including Washington, of whom it could be said 80 years after his death that he still lives, that he still influences policymakers for better or worse, and that he's still being debated about. Questions, comments, observations. We've got Yep, we've got a, a microphone right there. Would you speak to the issue of uh, the last 18 months in the White House and who was running our government under I'm, Wilson's? I'm having trouble hearing you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Would you speak to the issue of who was running the White House during the 18? It wasn't Mrs. Wilson. Now, this is you know, there's there's a there's a uh, an old story that Edith Wilson is the first woman president of the United States. Um, I would say, it would be more accurate to say Edith Wilson was the first White House Chief of Staff in American history. Her husband had a stroke in October 1919. He didn't leave office 
until March 1921. In retrospect, his reputation would be much stronger if he had resigned. And then he would have been a martyr to the cause. Instead, he lingered on. The White House lied about his condition. They pretended that he was, in fact, in better health than he was. They sustained the lie. The press went along with the lie. Although gossip, there was inevitably gossip. For example, when Teddy Roosevelt's rambunctious children, you know, had the run of the White House, they had actually installed iron bars on second floor windows to make sure they didn't fall out. Well, guess what? No one noticed them until Wilson was up there lying on his sickbed. And it was suggested, actually it was gossip, that the reason the iron bars were placed there was because the president was insane and they, uh, they had to keep him from jumping out the window. So all of this gossip is going on. The White House is basically lying about the president's condition. And in between is Mrs. Wilson. Now, Mrs. Wilson has no desire to be president of the United States. She's not educated for the role. She, she's really not very politically sophisticated. She has one thing and one thing only. She wants her husband to live. And um, so what she did was she controlled access to the president. She controlled access to his sick room. She controlled which paperwork went in and out of the, out of the, now that's a very powerful role. But it's not the same as being president. It's more like being chief of staff. She wasn't making decisions about policy. She was making decisions about what issues the president would decide. And as his health slowly, very gradually, sort of marginally began to improve, um, that slacked off. But um, it's, a, it's an urban legend that has lived on all of these years that Edith Wilson was the first female president. Um, not so. He was an advisor to, to Wilson, um, Colonel E. Mandel House. Right. He was uh, Wilson's alter ego. Yes. And uh, he had an agenda, um, Colonel E. Mandel's house did. He wrote in the book, Philip Drew Administrator. Yes. Yeah. And he projected a new world order yes. of, of internationalism and out of which I assume the United Nation, all these things uh, were projected from. Who was this um, individual, Colonel E. Mandelhouse, whom um, uh, George Virick says he, they, these money men put their confidence in Colonel E. Mandelhouse, and he was around the world uh, actually creating a lot of problems. Uh, could you uh, a little go on? Yeah, let me tell you very briefly. Uh, you know, presidents, you could do a book about presidents' best friends. Um, Colonel House was a little diminutive Texan. The title Colonel was purely honorary, bestowed on him by political friends, who had his own passion for governing. But Colonel House knew that he could never run for office. He could never win office. He didn't have the temperament. He didn't have the appearance. He didn't have the gifts. What he had a gift for, a genius for, was behind-the-scenes manipulation, and what you and I would call strategic planning. Okay. He became very good friends with Woodrow Wilson. He became Wilson's right hand in many ways. And it was a very constructive relationship until they got to Versailles after World War I. Wilson actually sent Colonel House over before he went himself. He had such confidence in House 
that he trusted House to, in effect, carry on the negotiations until the President got there. But remember, by this time, Wilson's health was deteriorating rapidly. We know he suffered from a severe case of flu. Now, the flu in 1919 is not the flu in 2006. After World War I, there was a worldwide epidemic of influenza, which killed more people than World War I killed. It was an absolutely devastating disease, not like the flu as you and I know it today. We know that Wilson had a severe case of the flu in Versailles. We also know he began acting very strangely. He became quite paranoid. Uh, he would order furniture rearranged in the middle of the night for no reason. There is some suspicion that, in fact, he may have suffered another minor stroke at Versailles and that that affected his reasoning. And that, in turn, led to this break that he had with Colonel House. In the middle of the Versailles Conference, he decided that House had betrayed him, that he could no longer be trusted. Now, it gets even more soap operish because the second Mrs. Wilson didn't like Colonel House. She resented him. He resented her. It's an old story. You don't have to be President of the United States to have such uh, uh, fissures in your household. But in any event, Mrs. Wilson was only too glad to get rid of Colonel House. He became a non-person, and in fact, he wasn't even invited to Wilson's funeral uh, when he died. So he is, he is one of those amazing sort of sidebars to American history. You know, when you, when you hear about how powerful a president is, again, that power may be exaggerated in theory, but it's also shared and in some ways dispersed and diluted through others. Colonel House is a good example. He was the closest thing to an assistant president that we've ever had. Yeah. In your, in your comparison of, of Wilson and Bush, that you made, George W. Bush, and the, the principle living on. I'm curious as to Wilson, whether Wilson was just idealistic or whether he argued, as, as I think the second inaugural or, or the State of the Union from George W. Bush, that, that it, the principle is in America's best interest. Or was it simply an idealistic principle that Wilson said, we ought to make the world free for democracy. No, I don't mean for a moment, first of all, I don't mean to be dismissive of idealism or principle. Um, at the very beginning of this nation, the founders defined it as a land unlike any other. They thought that it was a wonderful thing that we were isolated, that we weren't going to have, that we weren't going to be corrupted by the old world. By, by their practices. This was a place to begin the world over again. This was a kind of Eden. So there is that strain of, of idealism, of American exceptionalism, that runs from the very beginning. Wilson's belief was he tried to stay out of the war because he thought the United States could be an honest broker. Even though his sympathies might have been with one side or the other, um, he had, in effect, the hard-headedness to believe that the United States would have much more influence as a neutral, someone who could, in fact, try to bring the two warring parties together. And he was greatly admired for that. In the end, the Germans made it impossible for him because of their submarine attacks on American ships. So once we entered the war, 
to justify that fact, I think Wilson came to the belief that it was necessary to create some kind of permanent, rational, peacekeeping instrument that would bring the nations of the world <clears throat> together in a way that he had tried and failed individually uh, and to prevent future war. Um, now, is that impossibly idealistic? No. Um, is it difficult to attain? Absolutely. But it doesn't mean it's not worth pursuing. Just like the notion of spreading democracy as an idea is a very admirable is an admirable one. The, the problem is the rest of the world doesn't all want to be like the United States. And until we understand the true diversity of the rest of the world, then our attempts to speak to that world, sometimes to preach to that world, you know, or even to impose upon that world our vision, are going to be resented and resisted. But it's an age-old back-and-forth seesaw in the American experience. We have, uh, we, have, we have idealism followed by realism, followed by idealism, followed by realism, and some combination of the two. One more. Yeah. Were you going to make any other comments about Henry Cambot Lodge, or was I, uh, did I nod off during that point? You, I'm, I I'm sorry, said, I'm having trouble. The, the acoustics okay. are... I thought you said, you mentioned Henry Cabot Lodge, and yeah. I thought you were going to refer to him... Henry Cabot Lodge is the man who killed the League of Nations. Henry Cabot Lodge was the Senate, was the Republican leader in the United States Senate. And he hated Wilson, and Wilson hated him. I mean, it was an intensely personal animosity that existed. And, and the irony is that Henry Cabot Lodge knew Wilson psychologically. He knew that Wilson was not the sort to compromise. He was willing to compromise. He offered what were called the Lodge Reservations, which again would have allowed the country to go into the League with some For example, he was, the, he was the big issue. And it's a very logical, you know, I think Lodge in, has, been, has been pilloried, but he's a very logical uh, debate. Should a world body have the power to send U.S. troops anywhere on the world without Congress's approval. Now, that's a, you know, that's a very healthy debate to have. And Lodge and his colleagues basically were perfectly willing to enter into a world league, but they were not willing to surrender that degree of sovereignty over American foreign policy and American lives. They knew that Wilson was so committed to the League that he had negotiated in Paris that he would almost certainly never agree to any compromise, particularly one that had Lodge's name on it. And they were right in that. Mrs. Wilson lived on to be 89 years old. She died on her husband's birthday in 1961. That day, she was supposed to dedicate the Woodrow Wilson Bridge in Washington, D.C. And to the end of her life, she always referred to Henry Cabot Lodge as that stinking snake. But if you get beyond the name-calling and the personalities, you'll find that Lodge and those who agreed with Lodge 
were not ostriches putting their head in the sand, but, but patriots who wanted to find a way for America to break out of its traditional isolation without ceasing to be America. Thank you very much.